Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Pete. I'm one of the uh, pastors and priests over from Church of the Cross. Um, poor Father Rick harmed himself yesterday and hurt his back enough that he can't be here. Um, if you're worried about him, I'm sure Molly would love to commiserate her fallen husband. So um, I don't know anything else than that. He's hurting, and so he asked for help. So I get to come, and, and it's a joy to get to be here and um, serve this morning and, and see all of you this morning. Uh, Rick, let me know that you actually have been exploring Revelation a bit this Easter tide. And about uh, not too long ago at Church of the Cross, we did a series on Revelation, so I didn't have a sermon for the passage that he had ready, which works, he can keep that. Um, but I had one for a much weightier, heavier passage. So we get to do Revelation 13 this morning. Poor Christy was like, this is my first time reading, and I had a really nice, beautiful passage, and then I just threw this at her instead. So thank you for that. Uh, I hope we can all enjoy. I, I love the book of Revelation, so it's very good. So I hope this is uh, a blessing for all of you. Let's pray before I begin any further. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, uh, for um, the great gift of your word, uh, for the way you teach and show us and, and help us. Um, and ask that you be with us and speak to our hearts and minds this morning um, in this passage. And thank you for restoration uh, and the great gift they are. Amen. So over at Church of the Cross, uh, Pastor Christian and I, for quite a while, we managed to maintain, I'll call it a feud, about a parking spot. It was, you know, the first spot in the side lot. One morning, before I realized the things, I parked in that spot before Christian got there. And then he came and he let me know, you know, that's the best spot, so it should be his. And I told him, your name is not on it. And there we go. So we started going from there. It was a joking feud. I need you to make sure you understand. It was a joke. We joke a little too much at times. Um, so I would always claim things, you know, obviously the spot's for the first person who comes. The early bird gets the word. worm. Maybe he's just growing lazy as he's gotten older. All sorts of things like that. Christian would then, um, deeply hurt, say that I was betraying him. That he was, I was showing where my allegiance really was, and it wasn't with him. And I didn't deny that charge. I would usually lean into it a little bit of how those things go. If, honestly, if you haven't had the opportunity, fake sarcastic feuds are a really great way to start your day. Um, they really brighten things up. But I want to come back to just the Christian joking about allegiance. Um, we very much stand together on that. But actually, the big question of kind of allegiance, it's something very deeply real, very regular in our lives. Who do I really support and serve by my actions? It's a question I think we encounter daily. It can be something that we struggle with between our work and home lives. Whose side am I on? Who gets my time in the end? It becomes a question of relationships. If these are my closest friends and family, I'm going to support and help them. We even come across it in casual ways with entertainment preferences, right? Is it Batman or Superman or Spider-Man? Things like that. And of course, it's a question that we encounter in our social sphere and our political sphere. Um, everyone wants us to pick a side on everything, really. Whose side are you on? Who are you giving allegiance to? Do you support the status quo? Do you want change? How do you define the status quo or change? Um, do you support justice? All these questions. So really, we are engaged in these questions and so many more conflicts even throughout our lives. Um, and I think when we get to this big issue of allegiance, we can find it so often really exhausting. It's often emotionally charged. It can be scary and confusing. And it's not always easy to just simply answer that question. As a Christian then, where is our allegiance? As we come to uh, Revelation, this message was given by Jesus Christ through his servant John to the churches. 
And the book, it's actually a letter that's specifically addressing seven ancient churches in Asia Minor. It's meant for the rest of the church as well, but it speaks very directly to those churches and their challenges first. And probably the major challenge before all of these seven churches is, whose side are you on really? Who gets your ultimate allegiance and what does that look like? If we can take time in chapters two and three, we get their quick snapshots of these seven churches. And we see some of these churches are faithful, they're holding fast during persecutions that they're experiencing. Some churches, though, are struggling with their love for Christ, their faithfulness to him. Some churches are even being charged, they're charged with being complacent, that they've compromised their faith even. They're bending to the world around them, they're giving up the gospel. And these churches all need to then either remember or decide whose side are they on. So the book of Revelation begins with an amazing vision of the resurrected Christ in chapter 1. I believe uh, Father Rick preached on that a few weeks ago. And then it moves on and through the letters to the churches, and then it moves to chapter 4 and 5 to this vision of God on his throne. Vision of God surrounded by beauty, worship, obedient service, peace. It's there as a very necessary reminder for the churches, this is the one that we serve. This is where our allegiance must ultimately lie. Above and before all else, we follow and serve the God who created and rules all things, and his son, the lamb, who died to redeem all things. And now in our reading today, actually the broader part of this passage begins in chapter 12, you don't have in front of you. But in this reading today, we see the flip side of that coin in a sense. As we dig into this passage today, we see the churches being challenged again. You know who we do serve as Christians, that God of wonder and creation and redemption. But now you need to realize who it is you serve if you abandon Christ, when you compromise. Or for those who are being persecuted, they need to see who out there is actually trying to harm them, who out there is, is working against them so that they realize how much more important it is to hold fast to Christ. And very quickly, we are shown that the conflict is not ultimately with other people. It is with Satan and the powers that he governs in this world. So we don't have time to read all of chapter 12 today, but to really understand chapter 13, we do have to step briefly into that. In chapter 12, we're introduced to just the ongoing kind of cosmic conflict, even in a way, between the people of God and Satan. The imagery throughout the chapter is all about God's people and what's happening with them. And then in verse 3, our great enemy is introduced to us. He's described as a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his, seven, on his heads, seven diadems. Now be sure, at this time, dragons were never considered, you know, friends or pets or heroes or things like that. At this time, they were always associated with evil and chaos. And this dragon has seven heads and ten horns. Both of those numbers are symbolic of, of completion. So the image here is that the dragon, we're shown that he is um, completely, totally evil, full, totally of demonic power. The seven diadems shows that he claims for himself absolute power and authority. Not that he has it, but he's claiming it. And actually, a few verses after the dragon is described to us, he's named specifically as the devil and Satan. And then the story in chapter 12 progresses with Satan on the scene, and he tries to stop and kill the Messiah, Jesus. But of course, the dragon is stopped. He's defeated. He's thrown down from heaven. And the chapter ends with that great dragon, furious with God and furious with God's people. So he sets off to make war against them. It says, the dragon went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
He's making war on the faithful church. And the chapter ends with Satan standing on the shore of the sea, which is the point where our reading in front of you in the bulletin begins as a beast comes rising out of the sea. And we're going to get to him in more detail, but the first thing we have to understand about this is this beast we're about to see described, he exists because of the work and power of Satan. It exists because of Satan's war on the saints. And much more important than all of that, back in chapter 12, Satan's defeat was described for us. We need to remember that. He's been defeated by Christ's redemptive death and resurrection. So this is the raging of a defeated enemy here. It's serious, it's even scary, but it is utterly futile. God has already won, and the book will actually continue from this point on to make clear that God will work that victory out fully in the world, and he will even judge and destroy all the destroyers of the earth, which especially means Satan and these beasts we see in this chapter. So as we turn to this first beast, we see a pretty complicated vision here. It's filled with imagery and symbols that are being drawn, especially from the Old Testament. The imagery here is really meant to convey an awful lot of meaning, but also feeling. As we read of this beast, we're meant to be repelled by his terror and his evil. We're supposed to be disgusted so that we are drawn again to the God we worship and serve instead of this beast. For what the imagery around him means, there's kind of two main intentions to this passage. The first is to teach us about the character and the actions of this beast, and the second is supposed to help us see who or what this beast really is. So let's start with understanding the character and actions of this first beast. It's not overly hard here. Right away in verse 1, we see him rising from the sea. That's often the sea, an image of chaos. And he comes at the command of the devil. We see he has ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, similar to the dragon in many ways. And it's a picture of the beast's complete evil and demonic power, his claims to authority, all of those. It's not a flattering or good image here. The beast even has blasphemous names on its head. That's pretty vague, but we can think about how many rulers around the times that like this book was written, they would have divine titles for themselves. They would call themselves God or the son of God, things like that. Any of those things could be in mind. Just the whole point here regardless of what the names are, is this beast is wholly opposed to the true God. And it's even more clear in verse 5 and beyond. We see the beast speaks haughty and blasphemous things. He insults and mocks the living God. Interestingly, we see this beast has a mortal wound that has been healed, and that leads many people to be amazed by him and to even serve and worship him. And we, with that, we really see something that's core to the nature of the beast, He is a mockery of all that the Lamb of God is and all that he does. This beast is an unholy reverse copy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is sent by the Father, so the beast is sent by Satan. Jesus has the power and authority of the Father, so the beast has the power and authority of the devil. Jesus died and rose from the dead. In this book, he's described as the Lamb that has been slain, so the beast too seems to have a mortal wound that was healed. Jesus will redeem for himself from every nation, tribe, people, and language, a people for himself. Um, The beasts, though, will just grab authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And actually, the people worship the beast. They worship the dragon as well, and they say, who is like this beast? Who can fight against it? It's actually very similar in refrain to uh, how Israel worshiped their God. In Exodus 15, 11, they proclaimed, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It seems that Satan is totally unoriginal. He only takes 
the good things of God and attempts to twist them, make a corrupted mockery of them to try to lead people astray. Do notice, though, there isn't even an attempt to copy God's love, God's grace, his forgiveness. He can't touch on any of those things. When you remember that, then hold fast to our God of unrivaled love and endless grace. He can save us all even when we have been led astray. So this beast sets himself in the place of God. He accepts and coerces the nations to worship him. He even makes war against the saints, even conquering them. And the portrait is complete in that. The beast is wicked, spiteful, unholy evil. One thing very briefly, notice we're never told about good things that this beast does. It says lots of people will love the beast. They have to benefit from him in some way, right? We aren't told those things because the story of Revelation is in absolutes. It's black and white. And there is nothing good this beast can do that makes up for the evil that it does and is. No matter the mask it puts on, no matter the reasons people like its rule, it is utterly opposed to the God of heaven. So then, who or what is this beast? This is tricky. Um, But in this passage and later passages, it actually gives many intentional clues and details that can help us understand. In this passage, we see the beast described as coming from the sea. It looks like a leopard, a bear, a lion. This is imagery right from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, those descriptions are used of different beasts, but they all share kind of a common core. Each of the beasts are various nations or kingdoms that are opposed to God and to his people. They are nations and rulers who set themselves into the position of having ultimate authority, who stand in the way of the people of God and who are ultimately judged by God, and they have their power and dominion taken away. That imagery is meant to be carried into our Revelation reading today. This beast is like a nation or ruler who denies God, persecutes his people, claims ultimate authority and power. And if we continued into the book, in Revelation 17, the identity of the beast is explored further. There we are told that his seven heads are actually seven mountains or hills. That, along with other imagery throughout the rest of the book, means the earliest readers, when they saw this beast, they would have thought of Rome, the city on seven hills. Rome claimed the right to rule because it had the power to conquer. Rome was governed by the Caesars who were worshipped as Lord and God, and especially in the area of Asia Minor where these seven churches that Revelation was originally addressed dwelt. And Rome, by this time even of the writing of this book, was already persecuting, um, killing Christians throughout the empire for not submitting, for not worshipping. That's not meant, though, as the only identity of this beast. The point isn't that Satan has empowered only one group, to be his weapon against the church. In this, we should be challenged to consider anything or anyone that makes ultimate claims of worth and power. We should analyze any worldview that offers a rival narrative of what is true and good. The first beast is not something lost to the past or awaited only in the future. The church has been dealing with these things and will be dealing with these things until Christ returns because Satan is still at work. He's still at work in this way, even today. We'll come back to this and say more about this soon, but we need to first finish up this second beast in this passage. I think the second beast is a little easier. He's a little less said about him, which makes it nice. First, he's described as a lamb, which of course seems innocent or good, but this lamb speaks like a dragon. The message it has is evil and wrong. Likely, we're supposed to see in this that its message is coming directly from the great dragon, Satan himself. The image really brings to mind Jesus' warning that we should watch out for false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
And the second beast is very much a false prophet. He will be called that later in this book. We see here its whole purpose is just to promote the first beast's rule and even actually to turn the world to the service and worship of that first beast. So it even performs signs and wonders and deceives the world into making an image of the beast that has to be worshipped. It has the power to kill those who don't worship that image. We can think back to um, Daniel again when Nebuchadnezzar um, demanded all the people pray to an image that he set up and then he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace when they disobeyed. Of course, they were saved. Finally, this second beast causes everyone to be marked. It's described with this very infamous number by this point, 666. Here we see this mark. It's possibly being used to show ownership. It brings to mind the way slaves were marked to show that they were personal property. But it's certainly about loyalty, personal loyalty. The only way people could buy or sell is if they surrender to this beast, show allegiance to him, and take his mark. So this beast, too, it is an unholy copy. It's not exactly an unholy copy of Christ, though. Instead, it's much more of a mockery of the church. In chapter 11, Revelation, we see the church is described as witnesses who work wonders and proclaim the truth of God and the gospel. And in here we see a flip to that. We see a false prophet working wonders in order to lead people astray, to make them serve not Christ, but this first beast. And when the original audience, they would have thought of Rome first around that first beast. Here they would have recognized their local rulers, their local religious leaders who would have pursued and pushed for relationship with Rome. Again, in Asia Minor, many of these churches, uh, many of the leaders in, in this area of these churches, they only had power because they had first submitted to Rome. And actually the ru religious rulers in many of the temples instituted the worship of Rome. There was a goddess named Roma for that. They commanded the worship of the Caesars. Even participating in regular civic life, commercial life at this time, was bound up in servitude to Rome. Celebrations, community gatherings, trades guilds, they all began with prayers and sacrifices to and for Rome and the emperor. And we actually know in some of these places that the Christians who refused to participate in that false worship were sought out, arrested, beaten, often killed if they refused to sacrifice to the emperor and to those other gods. But this beast is also not meant to be confined just to the distant past. We're challenged today to consider who the false prophets are, to, profit, to process the ways that they try to lead us astray so that we give our allegiance to false gods and rival powers. We're challenged to examine how we may be asked to compromise our faith in order to live in this world. So as we move on, we consider then, what does this passage mean for us? We have to remember again, first, foundationally, this is about allegiance. Then we've been brought face to face with Satan and these two beasts. We've seen they do have power. They can be scary. They will even hurt and kill the saints. But the point of all this is not to cower before them, but that instead we should be challenged to hold fast to Christ. We're being shown our choices here, and ultimately there are only two choices. Either we offer our lives in love, service, and allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the true victor, or we end up working for and worshiping this other beast, and that means the devil himself. There's no middle ground here. So the question is desperately important for us. Whom do I serve? Where is my ultimate allegiance? The trouble is, beasts in our lives aren't always quite so obvious as they are in this passage. This passage shows us the ultimate truth. It's everything in black and white, but in our lives, it's not always so black and white. It's not so obvious. 
And of course, we can think of examples that are far away. The communist government in China, for instance, they demand allegiance, assume total control, they persecute Christians who won't turn from worshiping God. That's an easy thing to look at, but it's far away. It's probably not really a challenge of allegiance for most of us. So what are our challenges, or what are your challenges? Remember, this first beast is supported by the false prophet. There are many who like and support what this first beast does. So that means if that we are being fully honest here, we need to consider our direct response to the things that we love and support. We need to consider those things that we are giving allegiance to in some way. Is it possible that this thing might be claiming too much of my support? Could this thing be shaping too much my desires and my plans? Is this actually asking for the worship that only God is worthy of? I know with the examples of the text, we can pretty quickly be given to to consider our, our politics and our elected officials. Great, we should do that, but don't stop there. Consider your finances and spending. Modern consumerism is surely trying to claim all of your heart and mind. And all these corporations out there letting you know that you'll truly find happiness when you have their new product, do you believe them? Even sometimes our relationships, even totally by accident, will start to ask for an allegiance that we can only give to Christ our Lord. So maybe we find that this thing in our lives is actually fully one of those beasts. Or maybe instead we just realize that there is brokenness there. We either need to turn away or we need to turn it over to Christ for his redemption. And everything, though, he must be first and foremost. We owe all of our worship, our complete allegiance to him alone. Only when we hold fast to him first can all other things be in their proper places and then avoid becoming those terrible beasts. So I consider the challenge of this passage, um, what am I serving, who has my allegiance? Uh, I then wonder, too, of course, how do I know when I'm giving too much support somewhere? What might that look like? There's two things that I have found helpful that I'll mention here. The first is despair. Are there things that I truly despair over? Are there things that when they go poorly or things don't happen, they cause me to lose all hope in that moment? As Christians, we should never despair, even when good things around us are failing. We can mourn and lament, but we don't despair. We can't lose all hope, not if our hope truly is Jesus Christ, not if he holds our final allegiance. Because Jesus has already won the decisive battle with sin, death, and the devil. And as Revelation will continue on and show, he will finally and fully remove all of those things from this world. So we shouldn't despair. Our hope in him is unshakable. If you find yourself despairing, ask yourself, what is this about? Is this because something is claiming too much of me away from Christ? I think there's one other way we can start to wonder, start to um, think about if something has taken too much allegiance in our lives. I'll call it apathy here. What it is, I think, it's when we know something is wrong and then we, we do nothing. We say, you know, I know it's wrong. I think it's fundamentally against the love, grace, justice, peace, unity of God's kingdom, but there's just nothing we can do about it. Nothing will ever change. Now that is giving far too much power to whatever beast we are facing in that moment. Remember what we've said in this sermon already, Satan is at work, but he is already defeated. Our God reigns even now from his throne in heaven. Christ has conquered through his sacrificial death and resurrection. Nothing can ultimately stand before him. There is no evil in this world 
that is now too big for the power of God. There's nothing that we can see and lament that we can't also turn over to God and pursue him in. So if we find ourselves saying, well, that's just never going to change, then we can ask, am I giving too much power here to our enemy? Have I forgotten my allegiance to the God of infinite power and might? So again, Christ our King has already defeated evil, sin, death, and Satan. And with that, we have to realize um, that as part of the church, we are called to participate in that victory with him. We're even able to help work out the victory of Christ in this world. In Revelation 12, Satan is shown as defeated and cast down. As it happens, it's first a result of Christ's victory, but then it's actually tied also to the work of the church. So in chapter 12, verse 11, it says this, and they, that's referring to the church, and the church has conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The devil will try to conquer us through force and violence, but we will instead conquer him by joining with Christ, who conquers through his own sacrificial suffering and death. We will proclaim the gospel, pursue God's kingdom. That means the justice of God's kingdom, the mercy of God's kingdom, the beauty of God's kingdom, and so much more. We will do this with our whole lives, even if it means our death. And in this way, we win. Our allegiance is with the true victor of this battle. That victory isn't just something far away. It actually happens even in our lives, through our lives, in the world around us. So let's pray. Christ, we are so thankful that you are the victor and you are king with your grace and love and truth and all that is good. Um, draw us always to yourself. Help us to see um, how we can grow in holding fast to you, what needs to be left behind, um, and then work your kingdom out through our lives um, in ways expected and unexpected. Um, thank you for your power, love, and faithfulness. Amen.